Imagine you're getting ready to graduate from high school or maybe getting ready to graduate from college and you have a best friend. And that, you've got this great trip planned. You've been planning it for like two years. This amazing trip. You're going to go all the way out. You're going to go to uh, like California, go stay at some great hotels, do some shopping. Anybody like shopping? Or guys, maybe some surfing, right, if it's you. Um, and your best friend's dad has this awesome car he's going to let you drive the whole way. And that would be a lot of fun. It's got a sunroof, so you're planning on, you know, on the way to L.A., swinging down the Vegas Strip and, like, hanging out the top and going, woo, or something like that. Um, or you're not. I don't know. Uh, I've never done that. It looks fun. Uh, you know, you're going to go do some great stuff, have this great time. You can't wait to do this with your best friend. And the night before the trip, your friend calls you and says, hey, I can't go. I can't go. And they say, but my dad says you can take the car anyway if you still want to go on the trip. So you can go have fun, do some of that fun stuff. And in your heart, you're just like, I don't want to go alone. The whole point of it is doing this thing together, right? It's not like doing the thing. I mean, yeah, it would be some fun. I could go do the trip, but if I do it without you, it's not going to be any fun. It's just going to be empty, right? Everybody kind of feel that? You got to feel that for a second, because if you don't feel that, I don't think you're going to get the weight of what we're talking about, because it's so much more serious in the Scripture today. Okay? So if you have your Bibles... Um, and you want to head over to Exodus chapter uh, 33. Let me just set up where we're heading. Um, see, God has rescued his people from Egypt with a mighty hand. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. He, he gives them the covenant they're going to live by. In fact, the covenant, which, you know, covenant goes both ways. So God says, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you in incredible ways. And I want to be your one and only God. Um, there's, there's false gods and idols. I am the only God, but I want to be your one and only God. And then he gives them the laws that will structure society and says, here's how I want you to live. This is how we're going to live in covenant together. Think about a, a marriage relationship. You enter into a covenant together to love each other and, and care for each other till death do us part, you know. Um, but there's certain expectations on each other, right? And the same thing is true with God and his people. Two weeks ago, we saw this amazing ceremony where they ratify or put into effect this covenant and they offer sacrifices to God. God's presence comes down on top of Mount Sinai in this dramatic, powerful way. Moses reads them the covenant and as a whole, the people go, we're in, we're in, we'll, we will do it, we will obey God, we're so excited. And then God's presence comes, a powerful demonstration of God's presence comes, and it's this joyful, amazing moment for the people of Israel. And so last week what we saw is in chapter 32, Moses is up there a long time, 40 days, 40 nights go by. The people grow impatient. And they grow fearful. And they make a tragic and idiotic decision. They form a golden calf. They, they build an idol. And they, and they bow down to it. 
And it's an act that fundamentally threatens to shipwreck the plan that God has for his people to such an extent that God considers wiping them out and restarting with Moses. And then Moses intercedes, and God doesn't wipe them out, but still, fundamentally, something is broken. They've broken something they cannot fix, and they know it. And that's where we pick up the story today in Exodus chapter 33. Verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you to drive out all the ites. But here, here's the thing you should notice in that. Um, an angel. You see, significantly in Exodus chapter 23, which we saw a, a few weeks ago, God promises, my angel is going with you. In other words, the angel in whom my name is. Angel just means messenger, right? And so the sense we get in the Old Testament as we see God refer to his angel, the angel of the Lord, is actually um, a manifestation, a tangible manifestation of the presence of Yahweh, the presence of God himself. In other words, I'm going to go with you. And here, this is so significant because it's almost like God just says, I'm going to send an angel with you. Let's see. Uh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Michael, no, you don't want to go. They're stubborn. Okay. Um, Gabriel, you want to go? No, you don't want to go either. Okay. Let's see. Um, I don't know. Raphael, Donatello. Oh, wait. Those were Ninja Turtles, not angels, I think. The idea is here, I'm, I, I'm going to send an angel with you. Verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. I might destroy you on the way. Hey, you can go. You can have the stuff. You can, you can still take Dad's car. You can go. You can have all the stuff. You're going to have the blessings. You're still going to have the land. It's a good land flowing with milk and honey. That means abundance and blessing. You'll get the land. I'm going to send an angel. They'll... You know, I'm going to keep my promise here that I made to your forefathers, but I'm not going to go with you. You can have the stuff, but you don't get me. And they begin to mourn. And it says nobody put on any ornaments, which were what they came out of Egypt with, that the people loaded them up with all the earrings and nose rings, all the bling, right? All the bling they had. For the Lord said to Moses, verse 5, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I'll decide what to do with you. And so the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. These people mourn. I mean, the, so like the, the, you know, when your friend decides they're not going to go, and you, that, like that was the whole thing. You were just looking forward to being with them. And yeah, there's going to be lots of cool stuff along the way, but you're just wanting to be with them. They are feeling the weight of that. And they mourn because they realize God's presence is not going to be with them. And note this, because this is significant, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more in just a minute. But God's judgment to his people in this moment is, you can have my stuff, you just don't get me. And I think that's heavy, and I think that's profound. Verse 7. Now, we come to this interesting little section, and it feels so random when you just 
read through the text. And as I studied it and read the commentaries and stuff this week, it's not random at all. Like, you realize that when we read, we read Scripture through our very, like, A, B, C, D, linear, Western, modern mind. We think very linear. They think in the Middle East more circular, right? And so you see all these things as you read through. It's like, that's out of order. And just understand, for us, it's like, that's weird. But for the original reader, it makes perfect sense why these things are stuck in here like this. And as I dug into this in, uh, and, and thought about this this week, here, I think it's really profound why this little section is in here. It says this, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tent, watching Moses until he entered the tent. This is why they watch him. Verse 9, As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. And so this is pretty profound here because they would stand up. And remember the pillar of cloud, the fire by night that led them out of Egypt through the desert, the cloud by day, the fire by night. This, this pillar that moved in front of the Egyptian army and rescued them from the Egyptian army so they didn't, weren't driven into the Red Sea. Been with them all the way. And it's this amazing manifestation of, hey, God is with you. God is leading you. He's with you. And this is very significant that this is there because I think it's a callback reminding like, hey, remember how God has gone with you this whole way? Remember that? And there's a weight here. Because as they mourn, they realize this is what they're in jeopardy of losing. Verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. But it says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. And, and this is so powerful because Moses had a unique relationship with God. A unique relationship with God. Face-to-face. And when you hear that, um, we think in anthropomorphic or like human figure terms. And the scriptures are are often written in in that way. But if you understand the word in the Hebrew, it literally is the same word. It doesn't always mean face. It can mean like person. Like when you hear the expression, um, losing face. Anybody know that expression? You don't think literally losing face. Although you got some good homework this week. Um, you should go watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because <laughs> we're going to be like talking about some of that stuff next week. And so um, actually it probably won't help you at all. <laughs> but if you really want to see someone lose face, that last scene, I'm just saying. So the idea here, because just a few sentences later, we're going to hear God say, you can't see my face and live. And so the idea here is person to person, as this pillar comes in front of the tent, God is speaking to him in a profound way. The presence of God comes and is speaking to Moses, person to person. You know, it says in the scripture, God is spirit, right? God says God is light. God, God just, when God reveals himself at first to Moses, what does he say? I am that I am. You cannot fathom or wrap your head around the infinite God. Can you? 
God is everywhere, omnipresent, everywhere, all at once. Can we even fathom that? It, it's beyond fathoming, right? How do you, God is light. He's referred to as light. How do you fathom that? And the whole point of this, I am that I, I, I just am. I pre-exist everything. I created everything. Nothing exists outside of me. I am. If you could see me, it would blow your mind, literally. And yet God, the presence of God shows up and God speaks to him person to person, being to being, face to face, as we would say. But here's what I want you to, to just clue in on here is Moses is portrayed as what? A friend of God. There's something powerful about this relationship that Moses has. And I think this little tent of meeting section that's stuck in here is very profound and very powerful because not only is Moses portrayed as a friend of God, which means he has a unique relationship with God, which is going to come into play here as he intercedes on behalf of his people. But then also it's stuck in here to remind them of what they're, what they're about ready, what they're in jeopardy of losing, the very presence of God going with them. That's why they're mourning. They're like, we, we, don't, we don't want to just go to the land. We want you to go with us. We don't just want your stuff. We want you. Let me just say, if you've experienced God's presence in a real way in your life, nothing else comes close. Verse 12. So now we're going on. And maybe in this moment, and probably in this very tent, this next scene happens. It says this, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know by whom or you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Like, which angel? I don't really want Donatello. Which angel? Like, you just say a random angel. I, I'm not really comfortable with that. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. We're friends, remember? We're friends, God. You, you, you've said that. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. And I love this because even though Moses has this very close, intimate relationship with God, he always wants more. He's hungry for more, to know God more, to know God's ways more, to continue to find favor with him. He keeps seeking. He keeps pursuing God. He keeps leaning into God. In fact, Moses, I think um, the first thing you see about Moses when he encounters God at the burning bush is he's curious enough to stop his daily routine and schedule and go over and check this thing out. And I think many times we are so busy in our lives and so um, distracted in our lives that when God whispers in our ear or taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, lean into this moment or pray for this person or um, just engage in here or, hey, I miss you. I want to spend time with you. We're so busy that we don't even take time to pause and check and, and like lean in to what he wants to do, to engage with him in his presence. And see, this is something that marks Moses' life is he continually seeks God at a deeper level. So he says, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you. Continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Not mine, God. It's yours. You brought them up. You said they're yours. You, you delivered them. You delivered them. The Lord replied, replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. 
So God says, don't worry, I'm going to go with you. But this is interesting because you here is singular. Like you, Moses. We're cool. You, me, we're cool. And then Moses leans in more. And I love this statement. I think if this, was the state, this statement was the cry of our hearts, um, things would be radically different in the way we live our lives. He says this, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses says, I, I don't want your stuff without you. We don't, I don't want to go uh, alone either. But if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up. Don't send us up with some random angel. You, you it's about you, God. I'd rather stay in the wilderness than go to the promised land without you. I can't imagine just getting the stuff but not getting you, God. Just receiving your blessing but not having this relationship with you, God. And I think this is so powerful. Remember, God's judgment to them was, hey, you can have my stuff, but you don't get me. How many times are we content with God's blessing, but we don't press in to the relationship he's offering with us? How many times are we like, okay, God, I just want your stuff, but yeah, I don't really care if I have you. I think this is a symptom of our culture especially our, our modern materialist culture, right? Just look at the way you pray. It's mostly about me and my little family and my little kingdom and my blessing. And Moses here says, I, I don't just want the stuff. I want you. I want you, God. Let me just say, be careful the places where you're willing to go without God's presence. What do I mean by that? I mean, we, can, we, we love the idea kind of in our culture that we can hold on to all that the world offers, whatever habits, whatever behaviors we want, and sort of have God on the side over, over here. Like we have, we have a relationship with God. We're just not that interested in it over here. But I've got all this other stuff. And every once in a while, I, I kind of, lean in over here and engage with God or, you know, pray. Or at certain times, I feel like I want to, you know, build that relationship. But for the most part, I can have it all. We think we can have our sin, have our focus be all about this world, and yet still have this intimate relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. In fact, Jesus said this, he says, what good is it for a man to gain the world but forfeit his own soul? You know, when this life is over, because, we, you know, you know, as far as I've checked, um, nobody gets out of here alive. I hate to be the one to break that to you. I know you had other thoughts coming in here today. But unless Jesus returns, which I hope he does, but every moment he waits is more people that you're going to spend eternity with and have the ability to connect relationally with for eternity, which is why he waits. That's what it says. It's God's patience and his love for people, right? 
But Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the world and forfeit his very soul? That, that this life will end, and when it does, the things that we cling to with, with such a tight grip will no longer seem important. In fact, as you age, the things you clinged to in your 20s and 30s will no longer seem so important. Our teenagers in the room, the things that seem so important right now with the groups of friends you're trying to connect with in that video game, you'll look back later in life and it just won't seem important anymore. And the one thing that will be important is what did you do with your relationship with God and how did you use your life in connecting with others so that they could experience a relationship with God ultimately? Ultimately. The greatest promise that, that God offers, it's, it's, it's Him. It's Him. And Moses recognizes that and says, I don't want your stuff. I want you. And I don't want to just experience you for me. If you don't go with us, don't send us up from here. He's, he, he, is, he loves these people he's leading now. You remember when he first, when God first encountered him, he argued, I don't want to go lead those people. I can't do that. And, and in this process, he's developed a love for them, even though they're rebellious, even though they failed and sinned big time. He still loves these people. And he, wants, he doesn't want just this relationship with God for himself. He wants it for these people too. And so he says, go with us. Go with us. Let me just ask you, do you care enough about the people in your circle of responsibility to make sure that they don't miss out on God's presence now or eternally? See, it's not just about us connecting with God in our own personal relationship. The commission he's given us is to share his love. We have a saying around here. It's our strategy for ministry. My circle, my responsibility, if we could get every one of you to do that, to consider whatever, your, whatever the circle of responsibility, whatever your circle is, you know, your family, coworkers, friends, those that God has placed and given you influence over, if you would take it as your responsibility to see them connect with Jesus and grow in Jesus, we believe it would transform our city. We'd be adding services, busting out more walls, or um, building new buildings or something like that because that many people will be coming to Jesus, right? Moses says, I don't just want you for me. I want you for the sake of those around me. And that's powerful. Verse 15, And Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other, um, from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, it was God's presence that would mark these people. It was his presence that would mark these people. And it's the presence of God in your life and in my life that marks us as followers of Jesus. You see, Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Awesome promise, right? Jesus said, if, if, uh, if I go away, it'll actually be better for you He's saying to his disciples and all those that come after you, because I will send my Holy Spirit who will dwell in you. He said, if you love one another, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. 
as I have loved you. Now that brings a new level. Not just warm, fuzzy, the feels, oh, I love you. As I have loved you, as he was preparing to go to the cross for them. Brings a whole new level to it. Love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. You know what? The only way you can love that way is when the Holy Spirit um, empowers you to love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control. Don't know if those were in order or the correct flavors, all of them. But fruit, and, and the point of the fruit is a tree grows fruit because it's connected, right? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You don't just pop out fruit, grapes, unless you're connected to me, unless you are um, connected with my presence within you, the Holy Spirit, unless you're allowing me on a daily basis to empower you. That's how it works. That's the mark. And see, the mark of this people is that God's presence is with them, that God is their God and they are, they are his people. And the mark of your and my life as followers of Jesus is the presence of the Spirit of Jesus, the same one who raised Jesus from the dead now resides in us. His presence with us, his presence in us. And yet so many days and so many weeks, we can go through days or weeks or even for some, you would say, man, it's been, it's been like years since I've really connected with the source of life, with God's Spirit since I've allowed myself to be empowered, since I've taken and set aside and blocked off time to pray, pray and commune with him. Many days, maybe for you, many days, it's actually like you can go through a day or a week with barely giving God a second thought. His presence should be the thing that marks our lives. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 17, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and, and I know you by name. I think this is so powerful because Moses' relationship with God, James says the prayer of a, of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And Moses, although he's not perfect, he struggles with anger. It will trip him up over and over again in life. He loves God and God sees him as a righteous person before him. And his prayer is powerful and effective, his intercession on behalf of these people, because while he's a friend of God, he has relationship with God. God takes human prayer and human involvement in his plans very seriously. That is one of the big points of this chapters 32 through 34. Never forget that. As you pray for people in your lives who don't know Jesus, as you, God takes prayer very, very seriously. Prayer is powerful and effective, but walking with him, relationship with him, friendship with him is what makes your prayers powerful and effective. You can't just ignore him all the time. In fact, there's a scripture in Peter that says, if, if, you're, if you're treating your wife lousy, your prayers aren't going to be heard. And so there's an obedience to Jesus, a walking with him. That's part of that, right? All right, now I love this about Moses because God just said, I'm pleased with you. And Moses is going to go for it. Moses says this, and then, now show me your glory. I'm like, I'm in, good. I'm going to go for it here. 
Show me your glory. This word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod. Weightiness. Like the, the awesomeness. And no uh, middle schoolers, I had a middle schooler tell me the word for awesome now is dope. I don't think we should use that in connection with God. Does not convey. <laughs> the awesomeness, the kavod, the weight, the holiness, the glory of God. And see, I think there, there's two things going on here. One is, last time when God makes a covenant with his people, his presence shows up in a profound way. They see, you know, this blue sapphire, lapis lazuli. I'm not sure. Um, I mispronounced that. Try to say that 10 times fast, lapis lazuli. Um, but the sapphire is thrown. They see the feet of God as God appears in, in the form of a human. They see the feet of God. It's this glorious sight. So part of this is that God, Moses is saying, I want the sign of the renewed covenant. But part of what is going on here, I think, is Moses just says, I want to know you more. I want this relationship to go deeper. I want new revelation of you in my life, new revelation of who you are. He's hungry for God. He's hungry for the presence of God in his life. So he says, show me your glory. And the Lord said, verse 19, I will cause my goodness, my goodness to pass in front of you. God's essence is goodness. I think this is so powerful. When Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. You see, we, we often say the term God is love, and we think of it as with the feels, you know, which means touchy-feely, like squishy kind of. God is love, which for, for most people in our culture means kind of like you can never tell somebody to do that something they're doing and their behavior is wrong because God is just love and God who's loving wouldn't tell us to change our behavior. No. You see, in, embodied in love is the goodness of God. Embodied in God's love is the justice of God. Which is why he is just in his judgment or his, the, the judgment he considers for his people at this time. He's just in that because they've broken covenant because they, they have committed an awful sin as they've abandoned him and gone into idolatry. He's just, he's good. And goodness is the, uh, the idea of faithful. And goodness is love. And goodness is justice all wrapped up together, right? He says, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name the Lord, Yahweh, or Yehovah, as we would say it, in your presence, the, the personal name of God, the name of God, the Savior, the one who saves you. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, the word panim again, the, my, my unveiled presence. You cannot see my unveiled presence for no one may see me and live. Deeper relationship with God equals deeper revelation of his character. And he says, I will give you what you've asked for, Moses. Verse 21, then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face 
must not be seen. And this language, God's hand, God's back, God's face, it's a mystery to us, isn't it? Is God appearing in the form of, of a man? He does that throughout the Old Testament scriptures at various places. Whatever this, this revelation of God is, it's powerful and it's glorious. Another way to think of, of his back is the idea of you will see the place where I've just been. Which I think is profound. Because so many times in our life, when we seek God, it's not in the moment that we recognize him, but it's when we look back, right? And we go, wow, God, that's the way you were working. I didn't see it, but now it's crystal clear. Which is why when you're going through a hard time, hold on, have faith, lean in, seek him, don't give up. Many times you see his activity when you look back and you go, oh, that's what you were doing. First one, chapter 34, this, this narrative all goes together. We're going to move quickly. And the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which uh, you broke. <laughs> I, it's so funny. I think there's a lot of humor in this because as Moses comes down and he sees like the people, this golden calf, and he's like, ah, right? And he smashes the tablets. The first tablets um, from Scripture appear like God just sort of handed them to him or set them down, and they're just like, it says they're the very work of God. These guys like, uh, why don't you go try chiseling out some stone tablets for yourself? See how you like that. I'll write on them again. <laughs> Be ready in the morning, then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks or herds may graze in front of the mountain. This is the same language when God appears and gives them the covenant for the first time. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands, both up and down this time. I'm sure as he's climbing up, he's going, I shouldn't have broke those first tablets, right? Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love, or literally steadfast love, or faithful love, to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes, and I don't like this word in the NIV. I don't think it really conveys um, the heart. In fact, the other translations, the ESV is a lot better. He visits the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations. The description, God's self-description. God says, this is me. This is me. This is my character. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, sin. Yet don't think you could treat me lightly and do whatever you want just because of that because there are still consequences for sin. And oftentimes those consequences bleed on to the third and fourth generation. Now, God's not saying here, so, so many times we read this and we spin out on the last thing. 
And the point of this is look at all the first. This is meant to be a contrast. This is meant to be a contrast. And we spin out on the last part, the third and fourth generation. Ooh, that seems scary. This isn't about generational curses. Oh, your granddad did something bad. Now, now you're being punished for it. No. In fact, specifically in God's very covenant, he says, do not punish a child for the sin of their parents. That's wrong. So that's not what's going on here. I think the, the, the real heart of this, this discussion is, man, there are consequences. And they can last, the second and third generation, it's an idiom in Hebrew, means like basically the length of a lifetime, which is two or three generations. Right? And sometimes, as you know, consequences go on for generations, don't they? Some of you are still suffering for things, your parents, the example they set or the thing they did years ago. And it's affected you. And it affected your kids. And these people later on, about seven, eight hundred years after this, they'll go off into exile. And they'll be there for two or three generations. And the sins of the parents will have consequences that go on. This is a fact of life. And yet, don't, that's not the, like, the thing you're supposed to be noticing here and fixating on. It's a contrast. And he says, showing steadfast love to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. He is good. He is good. Verse 8, Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. He's identifying himself as a leader of his people, with his people, and the sin of his people. This is powerful. He's making intercession. He's praying for them. And the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. This is renewal language. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Now, verse 11, obey what I command you today. And then the next 17 verses of this chapter, he basically restates the Ten Commandments for him, restates the terms of the covenant, along with a little extra clarification. Don't make molten images out of metal. <laughs> Apparently he wasn't clear enough in the first time, so he reemphasizes that one. But it's not just a tedious repetition. It's a gracious renewal of his covenant to his people. Despite their sin, God is moving forward with his plan. And for the rest of the book, the action picks up like it was before the golden calf. It's a powerful, it's a powerful example of God's forgiveness and his grace. Verse 28. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And that's powerful. Verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with these two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Forty days, forty nights he fasts, which Food, um, actually, people do it still today. I had a friend that I did ministry with, this big Fijian guy named Israel, and he would fast for 40 days. He'd start out 
um, fairly large, and he would end it not so large, right? But this dude, normally you have a fast, you, you end it with like broth, soup, a little bread. Dude would go to McDonald's and have a Big Mac to break a 40-day fast. <laughs> I was like, man, I can't believe that. Like, you must have like a stomach of steel or something. Um, but anyway, the point behind this, God, that Jesus at one point, when his disciples come, he's been praying and seeking God. He says, I have food and water you know nothing about. And the point here is, during this time on Mount Sinai, there are things that transcend the physical realm. And even though that you cannot live in the desert for 40 days without water, in this case, because of the presence of God, it sustains him. It's a powerful thing. It's, it's such a powerful experience with God that he comes down and his face was radiant and glowing. And I, I think having those intense experiences with the presence of God usually comes from seeking him intensely. Like if you want to experience more of God's power and presence in your life, you need to seek him. You need to set aside time. I, I think so many times we miss out on the power of the presence of God in our lives because we just kind of ignore him all the time. In my experience, the times when I have sought God <clears throat> are the times when I experience Him. And you might go, well, duh. It's like, I'm smarter than you. But then the question is, well, why don't we really press in more? Why, why do you in your life find yourself never setting aside time to press in and seek Him? The other thing I've noticed about experiencing powerful moments with God is it usually comes when you're in pursuit of God's purposes. Like when you're engaged and you're on mission. When you're actually caring for the people in your circle of responsibility and praying like, how can I reach them? When you're asking God, God, where, how can my life be used for your purposes? That's usually the times when you experience His power most profoundly in your life. The moments that I've had these intense moments with God um, usually had something to do with that. I've had a couple of them in cars for some reason when I'm driving, which doesn't seem real safe to me. Um, but, and it was these moments where I was going, God, I want to do, go here or do this. And I experienced the tangible sense of the presence of God in a powerful, profound way. You know, this is why I want to always be a church that seeks God. I want to press in. I mean, we're going to pray for people to be healed and believe that God's going to heal some of them. Right? Does he do it every time? No. But does, does he do it sometimes? Yes. And you know what? When you don't seek him for it, you don't see it. It's just the way that he set this up to work, right? That you be faithful, you live your life. You know what? Life isn't dramatic every day. I don't know anybody who lives their life with this dramatic sense of, like, God's power and presence. And when you meet people that say they do, normally they're really weird. Um, but when you don't seek him and believe that he's going to move beyond just the, the ordinary day in, day out of life, you're not going to see him move in powerful ways. That's why you live your life faithfully. You walk faithfully from moment to moment. And you wait for those profound moments where God breaks in and encounters you in a powerful way. Now, here's, here's a warning, and we're going to finish this up. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses... 
His face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders in the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near to him. He gave them all the commandments the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When, the Lord, when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with them, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what had been commanded, and they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak to the Lord. And here's what I want to note on this. It is possible just to look at the effects of the presence of God and not really ever enter in. It is possible to just be intimidated and kind of weird out by anything that feels like a little uncomfortable. It's possible just to stand in worship and never really let your heart engage. It's possible to come to church and, and feel like your heart's being stirred, but you, you just resist. It feels like it's possible to even like feel prompted, I'm going to just lift my hands and go for it and worship God, and you're just too intimidated. It just feels too weird. You've got to get over that if you want to experience the power of God's presence in your life. You have to press in. You have to press into him. You know, you can spend your whole life bumping up to God's presence and never actually enter into it. And as a follower of Jesus, I believe that should be a tragedy if that's your life. You can live with the Holy Spirit of God indwelling your heart and not allow your heart and your life to be radically transformed by him. That's scary. That's why Paul says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, allowing him. When you hear the language of being filled, it's the idea of allowing your life to be controlled by him. And it's an ongoing process that we surrender ourselves to him on a daily basis, that we offer our lives to him. I'm going to invite Winston up. We're going to close with a song. You know, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul talks about this uh, veil that Moses wears in, in Corinthians. And he says this amazing thing about this very moment we just saw, that the law came, and if the law, which, which wasn't the end goal, the end goal is pointing towards Jesus, that the law came with glory, so glorious that the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses' face. He says, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious than that? And then he says this, now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And how do we experience that? The next chapter, he says this, so we fix our eyes, not what, on what is seen, but what is unseen. So since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're going to fix our eyes in the spiritual realm on him, and we're going to enter in, and we're going to worship him, and we're going to invite his spirit to empower us to live our lives in the way that he would have us. And I believe when we do that, we experience his presence in a profound way that changes us. Would you stand? Here, here's the thing I want you to take home, and I've been hinting at it all along. 
The greatest promise is his presence. It's not his stuff. It would be a tragedy if you lived your life just experiencing the blessing of God and you didn't experience his presence in the way he intends for you. Don't you want to experience his presence? Don't you want your friends, your family, those in your circle of influence to experience his presence both in this life and eternally? We're going to sing this song. It's an oldie I used to sing all the time called We Are Hungry. And here's what I want to invite you to do. And it may feel a little awkward, but I want to invite you just if you're hungry for more of his presence in your life to experience him at a deeper level, I just want to invite you just to stretch your palms out in front of you like that as you sing this. It's just a, a physical sign. It's nothing weird. It's a physical sign of, God, I, I'm receiving from you. And I want to invite you to ask him to encounter your life in a new way this week. Would you sing? And then I'll close in prayer.